This morning's scripture is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 8 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonships, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen as no hope at all, who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is God's word. Again, it's good to be here. I appreciate the hospitality. I forgot my reading glasses, and so the first uh, service, uh, I had a hard time just reading the passages. So your lovely media team printed up the passage for me. Really big. It's nice. I like it. Um, so no excuses. Well, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in today, uh, and your th- the theme for today is success, and so we're going to see what Scripture says about success and frame it as, as Paul does for us here in this passage. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the reading of your word. Uh, these are words of life to us because they come from you, and because you love us. You love us more than we love ourselves. You want what is best for us. You care for us, and you want to be in fellowship, communion with us. And so we ask that you would help us to listen well to you, and that you would be making us into the people you long for us to be in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, while I was working on this sermon and trying to get a whole bunch of other stuff done this week, I I was getting distracted by a bunch of articles, uh, and I was reading articles on success, of course, uh, because that's the theme of today's passage. And I don't know about you. But the articles that I'm most drawn to are those articles that offer you the secrets of success. Man, I want those. I want to be a successful person, right? And defined in my way, which is have all the money I want, all the time I want. I want to be a really engaged father and pastor, and I want to watch a lot of TV. That's just <laughs> so good. That's, that would be the measure of success. But... Um, so I was reading these passages this week, and uh, Forbes had a, a recent article entitled, The Four Secrets of Success. And here they are. Number one, think positive thoughts. It makes you attractive, and if you're an attractive person, good things will come your way. So good. <laughs> Number two, pursue your passion. Your passions are usually indicative of your strengths. Number three, learn how to endure failure. Eventually, luck will come your way. Number four, stick to your priorities. 
Because highly successful people know what they value in life and they stick to it. Now, the first problem with these articles, the first problem with these lists of how to be successful and the secrets to success is, are that none of them list reading articles about success as one of the ways to actually achieve it. I've never said, you know, you've never heard a CEO say, you know, what you really need to do is spend some more time Googling how to be successful. That's, but there is a reason why I'm still drawn to the charms of these articles. And so are so many of you. They wouldn't keep publishing all of these articles over and over again if we all didn't read them. And I think it's pretty simple. It's because we really do want to be successful. We really do want our lives to make a difference in this world. We want to have an impact. The Bible says that we are created in God's image, and therefore that's kind of part of who we are. That we want to make a difference in this world. And it doesn't matter what walk of life you are in. Students, when you get a good grade, you're not just satisfied because that grade is going to somehow make your transcript look better. That might be part of it. But you're also glad to get a good grade because you put some work into it. You studied hard, and your work has been reflected, noticed by your teachers. Professionals, no matter what your field, finance, medicine, education, art, you experience satisfaction in your work, and you experience joy in your labors when you've worked hard and you've made a difference and your colleagues have noticed somehow, right? Parents, think about the pride you feel when your teenager surprisingly makes a wise decision. (laughs) Think about that. That doesn't just happen. That happens because you are engaged in their lives in profound ways. And you've had all sorts of difficult moments that you have worked through to get them to the point where they make that good decision. That's success. We want success in our relationships. There's nothing more rewarding than when a friend, a coworker, a spouse, or even one of your children says, thank you, I couldn't possibly have done that without you. We long for success. And when we don't get it, it causes us a lot of anxiety and angst and suffering. We struggle with it because we want to make a positive difference. And when we realize we are not, we struggle. And so because we are human beings made in God's image, we are constantly assessing ourselves, assessing our impact on the world. It's why we're always asking, does what I do really matter? Am I making any difference around here? Does anyone care? Is anyone at all listening? And when we're not sure of those of the answer to those questions, then we start reading those dumb articles. Because we do want to make a difference. And that's why we need this passage. The human authors of the Bible had the same desires and longings as you and I do. And Paul, by almost any measure of his day, was a success. And here he reminds us that our work in this world is inherently valuable and always 
subject to frustration. Success never comes predictably. And the good news here is that success is not just possible, it's actually inevitable in Jesus. And so those, kind of, those convictions here, what this passage says, frames the way I want to talk today. Uh, three points. The first is this. God wants us to succeed. He wants us to flourish. The second is that our success is always going to be marked by frustration, futility, and maybe even failure. And the third point is that God is in the process of renewing all things through Jesus Christ and will still make our work, even though it might fail. He will redeem it and make it successful. So let's look here. First, God wants us to flourish and succeed. Paul, in this passage, repeatedly talks about creation. He hearkens us back to the story of creation, so I want to do the same thing. At the beginning of Genesis, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth and everything they contain. And I want you to consider how remarkable that fact is, that there was a time when nothing that you see around you ever existed. And the only thing that was was God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, dwelling together in perfect harmony and as an expression of their mutual love. They wanted to share that with us. And so God created us in His image and created a place for us to live. Put us in a garden where we could love one another, we could dwell with God, and we could actually have a purpose in this world. I mean, think about it. God creates a world that is remarkably beautiful. His love manifested itself in mountains and meadows and fields and forests, birds and beasts, men and women, and then He calls us to tend that garden. You see, that's the most remarkable part of that creation story. It's not just that God, in His infinite power and love, creates the world, makes this beautiful garden. It's also that He makes us His gardeners and calls us to participate in that work with Him. Let me remind you of the words of Genesis. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. So the language of working and keeping means to nurture and to cultivate, to protect and produce something new. And so God, who didn't need anything, could have done it all on His own, invites us to participate in Him, participate with Him in the, in the cultivation of what He has already made. And so that's what we do. That's what you do. Every single one of you in this room cultivates this garden in some way. And you all do it in different and many complementary ways. Think about all the examples of how you try to bring shape to this world. Some of you write melodies in your head at red lights. Others of you solve problems with technology. You think, man, we need to make a new app for that. A few of you eat meals and the entire time you're eating, you're imagining how you would make it better. 
And that's fine when you're at a restaurant. Just don't do it when you're at your mom's house at Thanksgiving. Just don't. It's okay. You're called to cultivate and create. A few of you may be called into politics because you have a vision for how this world could actually be better. And how issues like poverty, racism, education can be dealt with here in Charlotte in a better, more effective way. Why? Why do you care about these things? Why are you engaged in these activities? It's because you're created in God's image and that's what you were made to do. God wants you to succeed in this world. He wants the work of your hands to produce things. He wants what you do Monday through Saturday to matter just as much as what you do here on Sundays. What you do here in worship on Sundays is meant to thrust you out into the world so that you can be God's gardeners and cultivate good and beautiful things. So God wants you to succeed. And when Paul talks about creation here, he's reminding people of the high calling that we've been given. That we work as God's images. We are his gardeners, and he wants us to thrive and to flourish. But that's not all this passage says. This passage also reminds us that even though God wants us to succeed, Our work is always frustrated. Let me read 20 and 21. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You hear that? Creation is subjected to futility, And again, this reminds us of the creation story, doesn't it? That God created us as his gardeners, his caretakers, his cultivators, and we despise that role. We wanted to own the garden. We wanted to determine what was going to happen in that garden. And so we rebelled against God. We violated our fellowship with him. And as a result, we began to vandalize his creation. And God says, as a result of that rebellion, that all of our work is going to produce thorns and thistles, frustration, futility. Listen to Ecclesiastes. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Does work ever keep you up at night? Do your responsibilities ever keep you from resting? That's what the Bible says was going to happen. Because of thorns and thistles. That our best efforts result in futility and frustration One day I was walking home from church with my son. He's 10 right now. He's probably nine years old when this happened. And we're walking home. He's holding my hand. And he says, Dad, I really liked your sermon today. I said, oh, that's really nice, Walker. 
Thank you for saying so. But Pastor Mark preached today. <laughs> All of our work, our best efforts, futile. It's wasted. And this happens on almost every level, right? There are examples of it everywhere. Nothing is unspoiled. Paul says here, the world is in bondage to corruption. Even our highest ideals, our greatest accomplishments are spoiled by sin. Our cities, they're designed for diversity, common good, but they are tinderboxes of racial tension. Our universities and our hospitals, also created for the common good, are more concerned about the bottom line. Families, where intimacy and mutual affection are meant to be the ties that bind us, are marked by open conflict, neglect, and oftentimes silent indifference. As we ignore the people closest to us and spend so much time communicating with people we really don't even know. We're frustrated. We're frustrated in our labors. And that's not even the worst news. The worst news here is that the futility and the bondage about which Paul speaks are not just evidenced by our failures. They're also evidenced so often in our success. As we already said, God wants us to succeed. And I know that there are many of you in this congregation who are very successful. You're successful at work, at school, at home, at the gym, or on the golf course, wherever it is. But it's possible to fail in our success, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It happens when you finally achieve everything you've been working for. You get the perfect job, your kids get into the right schools, you get your dissertation published, you buy the vacation house, your 401k gets to the level you want it to be, and when you achieve it, you are still totally and completely unsatisfied. And so you set about establishing a whole new set of goals that you have to go out and accomplish because you don't understand what to do anymore. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller quotes Chris Everett, who was the leading tennis player in the 1970s and 80s, and really the first first woman tennis player I was ever really aware of growing up as a kid. And her career win-loss record was the best of any singles player in history. But when she was thinking about retirement, she was terrified, and she said this to an interviewer. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was, looked, it was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Mary Bell, who was a counselor to executives and CEOs, would concur with this. After talking to a lot of them, She says that it is our inordinate desire for success, our idolatry for success, if you will, that is one of the things that is destroying us. She says that that achievement is the alcohol of our time, 
These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, and you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever, and you slide back to normal, but you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to have it again. And the problem is you can't stay on that high. The next time, you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clinching the next deal. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. And why is that success so important to us? Mary Bell and Chris Everett identify it. It's because we have invested our identity in the things that we accomplish. We've tried to figure out who we are by the work of our hands. We've tried to figure out what it means to be a human being by only looking at the gardener. By only looking at the garden and ignoring the, gar- the, the, the one who created the garden. You see, all of the good things that God calls us to do and to be can be corrupted and twisted, marred by inordinate desire. See, Adam and Eve wanted to be gardeners without God, and it destroyed them. And it's destroying so many of us as well. So what's the solution? What are we to do about it? What are we to do about the fact that our success is never enough? Your desire for success is destroying your life. Or your lack of success is ruining your day, ruining your family, making you an envious, jealous, and miserable human being. How are we supposed to deal with this? Well, if you listen to Mary Bell and the other counselors, and you probably go to some of them who will tell you this, you need to stop focusing on external things for your identity. That instead of looking at your career and your kids and your bank account, you need to look within yourself and find that which is good and true and beautiful and hold on to that. But friends, that is no more hopeful a message than the one that they're trying to correct. Because I don't know about your heart, but I know a little bit about mine. And there's not a lot good and true and beautiful in there. There's a lot of selfish ambition. There's a lot of vainglory in there. So what do we do? Well, the answer to this pa- in this passage is that we must look outside of ourselves. But as I've already alluded to, we must look away from the garden. We must be tending to our work, but we must always pay attention to the fact that there is one who created the garden because God is the one who is guaranteeing our success. God is the one who is renewing all things. God is the one who has entered into our story, into our world, that He might restore us to our work, to the people we were created to be. I mean, that's what the passage says, doesn't it? Verse 21, 
Paul celebrates that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is the promise that Paul understands to be the gospel message. See, if you ask a bunch of Christians what is the gospel, you'd likely get some different answers. Some would say the gospel is about the forgiveness of sins. Others would talk about personal morality. Others might talk about social justice and equity. And still others would talk about the church. And you know what? They're all right because they're all part of this big story. Paul in Colossians says that God is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus Christ. That the goal of our salvation, one of the reasons that Jesus came into this world was not just to forgive us for our sins, but to free us from the corruption, the frustration, the futility of sin and death that plague us in this world. And Paul in this passage says that that work is underway and that someday it will be fulfilled in Jesus and the book of Revelation gives us a picture of the, heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Charlotte, where you can work without producing thistles and thorns, where you won't be frustrated, where you won't come to the end of a day and think, man, that was a waste. That's the promise held out for us in this passage and in the book of Revelation and in Scripture itself, that God will be making all things new. But that's not the only promise here, because Paul is not just promising us a distant dream. He's talking about a present reality, something that is true right now. Look again. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Until now. That the futility and the chaos that was unleashed in the garden has been frustrating people, has been leading to suffering and to death. All of those Paul compares to child pain. Pain of childbirth and through that pain and suffering comes salvation, salvation to us in Jesus, who actually entered into that pain and entered into that suffering and was himself vindicated and raised again. And now Paul says that the hope is not just for the end of time, but that the resurrection hope is in us right now, that we have the Holy Spirit as the first fruits, the down payment, the guarantee of what God's going to do. So the Holy Spirit who created the heavens and the earth and made that beautiful garden is living in you and every follower of Jesus. The same Holy Spirit who directed Jesus in his earthly ministry and was with Jesus when he was in the woodworking shop making tables and chairs is in you. The same Holy Spirit who drew Jesus out of the tomb 
that Holy Spirit is at work in you. As you are doing your chores around the house, as you are cranking out those mindless spreadsheets, as you are engaged in all of the tedium of your jobs, the Holy Spirit is in you. And Paul says in this passage that we can be confident that our labors in this world will be redeemed, that God will use them and celebrate them, will rejoice over them in the same way that he rejoices over the resurrection of his own son. who began a new creation and who continues it in and through your life and in and through your work and your labors. God loves your jobs. He wants you to thrive in them. He wants you to be successful. He also doesn't want you to be overcome by failure. Because if we are united to Jesus Christ, then we know that even death itself is not the end of the story and that we will be raised again to new life, to new work. I want to remind you, friends, that this is not a secret of success. This is not a secret that can only come to those of you who subscribe to Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, or Fast Company. This truth has been well-known for two millennia by those who follow Jesus, by wise men and shepherds, by tent makers, tax collectors, by moms and dads, children. There's no secret here, friends. It's if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then these promises are for you. And you are already participating in this new creation. So do not be overcome by failure. Do not overestimate your success. Find your identities in Jesus Christ and serve Him faithfully in every walk of life. Let me pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage. We ask that You would bless it to us. We ask that you would help us to be your servants in this world, serving you with great joy and bearing fruit, as you promise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.